Tonight we're going to uh, talk about canon. In fiction, canon is that story or material that is officially part of the story or it's part of the fictional universe or the fictional world, the mythology that uh, is part of that storyline. In the 20th century and now in the 21st century, the use of canon to describe what's official and not official has become pretty standard and it's grown. I remember that... um, you would see comic books that Superman was going to marry Lois Lane. And, oh, boy, it was right there on the cover, and you'd read it, and they got married, and you were thinking, there you go, isn't that great? And then, of course, it was some imaginary tale, or it was just something to, you know, fool Lex Luthor or something like that. So it wasn't really official. It wasn't canon. Star Wars came out in 1977. Sequels were soon on the way. Most people think that Empire Strikes Back was the next Star Wars. It wasn't. The next year, there was something called the Star Wars Holiday Special. And George Lucas doesn't want you to know about that. It's not canon. No way. Although, it introduced uh, some characters that became canonical. All of, all of this is either canonical or it's apocryphal. Remember that show Dallas on, on TV? The whole, what is it, second season was nothing but a dream. Victoria Principal woke up and, you know, and there, Bobby Ewing's still alive. See, the whole thing was non-canonical. Why did you waste your time watching it? The uh, whole second season doesn't matter. They had to reverse it. The terms canon for that which is official and apocryphal for that which is imaginary have entered into the language of popular culture. And get this, they come from the study of Scripture. Not study in Scripture, but the study of Scripture and how we got Scripture. So to talk about the canon means to talk about why we have the books that we have. Now, I want to work this out in a, in a couple of parts. And it is, this doesn't seem logical, but it's easier to approach the New Testament. And then we can talk about the Old Testament later. Um, the New Testament, we can kind of wrap our 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 thoughts around, our minds around the process that develops it. And you can use canon to answer the question, or the topic of canon to answer the question, who decided what books make up the New Testament? Well, the answer is, at the same time, no one and God. All right, that's, that's your easy answer. Because there's no one person that gets to be the gatekeeper and gets to say, okay, here's your books that are in the New Testament and here's your books that are not. It's much more complex than that. Uh, But at the same time, you see a, a process developing that makes that happen, which I don't think should be discouraging or alarming to us. The rather organic and kind of almost haphazard, it seems like, process is just more evidence of God at work in this development of a people who have a redemptive story. So, you have 27 books in the New Testament, and learning what the canon is, and by the way, canon is just from the Greek word that means 
It's not the cannon fill it with gunpowder and an iron ball boom. That's a cannon. This is cannon, which is just uh, one end, and it means the list. It's your list. It's your official list of what's in and what's not in there. And over the centuries, different uh, groups, different authorities, different committees and councils have written out, well, here are the official books. And for the most part, they all end up in the same place. And the reason is, you don't rewrite what was already written. Everybody already agreed it was that way. Now they're just writing it into the official language. So it's actually quite easy. But, but how do we even get to this set of 27 that we call the New Testament? And we know of some other documents out there. Why, why not? Why weren't they part of it? That's the process that I want to talk about. Luke Timothy Johnson is a, uh, New Test- a writer on New Testament studies that, that I really appreciate. And I, I want to thank Luke Timothy Johnson for, for his work. Uh, he, in his book, The Writings of the New Testament, he names five different stages of development. Now, it's not as if anybody is thinking about this as a factory process line and saying, okay, first stage, let's do this. Second stage, let's do this. Third, in fact, we're not even sure exactly how the other stages take place, but it makes logical sense that this is how it would have developed. And so we can describe it with these five. The first stage would be very logical. You have to compose these documents. You have to write them. And so in various settings around the world of the first century, you have writers who are writing these documents that make up the collection we call the New Testament, and they are, they're, they're writing them not because one day they decide, you know, we need a Bible. Let's do that. They have Scripture, and that Scripture is what we call the Old Testament, but they regard it as the Bible. It's Scripture. But you have different reasons for these things to be written down. You have uh, one generation that wants to preserve the story for the next generation. So when Luke writes his gospel for uh, Theophilus, he says, I've gone around and I've taken accounts from the eyewitnesses and I'm putting this down so that you may have uh, you know, certainty about the things that you've believed. Uh, Paul is writing letters for different purposes. Sometimes he's writing to correct problems. Sometimes he's writing to encourage people. Sometimes he's writing to introduce himself to people like he is with the uh, letter to the Romans. Each one of our documents is, is intended for a purpose, and it was written, and it was sent to real people. It wasn't just meant to be uh, sent off to a publisher and then uh, put on a printing press, and then you can go by your local store and buy it. It was a message that was intended either for specific individuals or specific groups or for people in general who were believers. Each one of the letters has that sort of a background. So composition is going to be your first stage. And here's what's interesting. The needs of the church determine what books are written. The reason why we have 1 Corinthians and the reason why Paul can emphasize in 1 Corinthians that the things that are of first importance, he he says in chapter 15, um, It has to do with that gospel. The reason is because there was a need in that church in Corinth to remember the basics. 
And that's why this letter is written. And there's a conversation between Paul and that congregation. But there's, there's some need within the church that demands that each letter be written. Uh, a good one to look at is the short epistle of Jude. And uh, he says, I set out to write you, to encourage you about the things that we hold in common. He says, but I find that I have to write to you to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith. So what he set out to write is not what he needed to write. And there is that very practical pastoral need, which again, makes the writings of the New Testament very real as opposed to somebody trying to dictate out some grand scheme about what everyone is supposed to believe and how everything fits together. It's very straightforward in its purpose. Okay, the second stage is you've composed these documents, now you have to use them. You use them, and how are they used? Well, this again is where we're, there's some distance between us and the past. We're used to picking up our Bibles or turning on our electronic devices, setting aside some uh, devotional time. We consider it a great privilege to set aside devotional time to study the Bible. In fact, I think that nowadays you can't really study the Bible unless you have um, uh, some sort of Bible that has journaling space in it and you have to have a huge cup of coffee, ideally a latte with one of those little cream leaves in it sprinkled with nutmeg. And before you study, you need to take an Instagram of it and put it out there so that everybody knows, I'm studying the Bible. Look at me. And... Um, it's a, and, and hey, I like that because you know what? It's a wonderful thing. I mean, just to have that time to read like that is a wonderful thing. We're all so busy. But if we were in the first century church, if we were in a first century congregation, the only documents that we'd have is what somebody bothered to write down. We might have some, some, some copies, some collections of the Psalms or some of the prophets. And then one day, a copy of a letter comes to us. It's from the Apostle Paul, and maybe we've never met him, but we've heard about how God is using him and how this is the one that used to persecute God's people. And, and, and now he's being used by God to, to share the gospel. And we say, listen, okay, today, in addition to our other readings from Scripture, and the reader is not just going to read to bore us all into tears. He's going to read because that's how we know this. We hear it. Some of us in this first century congregation, we can't read. There's no point in us trying to learn to read. That's for scholarly people. That's for people who need to use that. Hey, some of us are, are, are rich and maybe we're scholarly and that's okay. And we might be able to read. We might be learned. Some of us are out uh, farming, though. Why do we need to read? Some of us are slaves. Some of us, uh, we, don't, we, we just work for people. We don't need to read. But we can hear, and we can hear a message. And so, some, so this Paul has a message that he sent to one of our neighboring churches, and now we're going to hear it read to us. And this encourages us. That's the use of these documents. Every document that you read in the New Testament, remember that at some level, at some point, at some time, the way it was used is that it was read out loud to the congregation. Um, in fact, 
I want to take you back, not to the first century, but to the second century. And I'm taking you back to, oh, specifically the year, let's say, 150. You got that? This is A.D. 150. We have a writer named Justin. He's called Justin Martyr um, because he died for the faith. Either that or his last name really, you know, set up expectations. But the, uh, he, he describes worship. And he's writing to, uh, to others to describe. Remember, this is 150. People don't just accept Christianity as standard. Everybody is looking in on this group that calls themselves Christians and saying, hey, what are you all about? Well, Justin writes a letter to say, well, let me tell you what we're about. Let me tell you what we do. He says, on the day called the day of the sun, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. And then we all rise together and pray. He describes part of what they do when they come together on the day of the sun. And, uh, and, he's, and he's using the, the pagan term for the first day of the week. But uh, somebody reads... Now, the prophets or the memoirs of the apostles. Why didn't he say New Testament? Because they don't know that it's the New Testament. They don't regard it as that. There's a collection of the writings of the apostles as in uh, Matthew and John and, and, and all the other writers. And we have their, their uh, you know, maybe even Paul is included in that. But we have this collection that's forming of these works and then of course the prophets of old and that's read and everybody hears that and and then somebody gets up and gives a lesson based on that Uh, that's how we learn that's how we grow that's how we're shaped as the second century church Um, but you can find example of that in the um, in the first century all right if you want to look at scripture with me let's take a look at Acts 15 verse 23 in Acts 15 the, the leaders of the first generation church have come together to decide what to do about the fact that these Gentiles are coming into the church. They seem to have the, uh, the Holy Spirit. God seems to be accepting them. So they get together. They, they, they pray through the matter. They study it. They talk about it. They uh, hear the witnesses. And their response then is out of Jerusalem, those leaders say, we need to get this word out to people. Here's what we'll do. We'll send a letter out. And it's, pro- it's a letter that's most likely copied, or it circulates. And in verse 22, uh, we read, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the letter continues and then says farewell, and it gives them some instruction. But here you have one of the earliest examples of a writing that comes from apostles that goes out to the churches. If Luke is collecting material and stories and input from the original witnesses, don't you think this is included in that? And he's including the story behind it and the letter that was written. He thinks that it's important. Uh, you have statements like Galatians 1-2, where in uh, the letter to the Galatians is, again, we call it the epistle of, of Paul to the Galatians, and we might think it's one church, but honestly it says to the churches of Galatia in chapter 1, verse 2. There's, there's, there's probably many churches in that region. It's a large region. And he's, he's aware of them, and he has a, there's a network of relationships there. In Colossians chapter 4, you see this development taking place within the pages of the New Testament itself. He concludes the letter to the Colossians with greetings and you know, his hellos and you know, recognitions. Uh, if you're translating it today, he'd say, uh, you know, shout out to Epaphras, you know, hey, you know, I see you out there. I know what you've been doing. He, he, uh, he, he has this, and then he gives them instructions. Verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, the letter from Laodicea is one of the other letters of Paul that Laodicea had, or it's some letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, and we don't have it. And if that makes you nervous, don't worry. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, you see, though, that, that there's this reading of these documents and this sharing of these documents that goes over time, which brings us then to the third phase. They start to collect them. That when one of these documents is really meaningful, they collect it, they copy it. These are short letters. They think, we need to keep this. We need to send it on and let others read it. But we want to keep it because we might read it again. We need to remember this. You know, it's sort of like the way that we record sermons. It's like, oh, that's good. We need to remember that. Let's get that for later on. Yeah, can you hand me those notes from that class? Because we might need to come back to that later on. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here. The local churches then build these collections and they recognize the benefit of these messages for others. And they're probably sharing these documents because th these, these writings are, are somewhat um, uh, precious and special. Now, again, they don't treat it like it's some sacred holy artifact, but you know, this isn't just something you come by easily. You can't Xerox it. In 2 Peter 3, we, we have the idea, and again, what's, what we see here in 2 Peter 3, 16... You see the, uh, Peter mentioning the fact that there is some awareness of a collection of Paul's letters. Um, I want to start in verse 15. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Why does he have to say other scriptures? 
there's the idea that already the letters of Paul are being regarded as Scripture, as writing, and it's instructive. The, as Justin will say in the year 150, the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets. So now churches start to collect these things. They come together. People start to recognize them. Maybe the letter of the Laodiceans didn't get anywhere because it just wasn't that good. Maybe, I, I, I mean, I know that sounds terrible, but it may not have been as inspired as the letter to the Colossians. Or it might be a, a repeat of something else that he said somewhere else, or it may have meaning to the Laodiceans. But at some point in this process, each of these churches says, you know, this is not just good for us. This is something that everybody needs to hear. The letter of the Laodiceans may not have been that way. And we do know of documents that were distributed among the churches that people thought, this is very helpful, but I wouldn't regard this as Scripture. Uh, we, we've got a lot of documents like that. And sometimes churches were encouraged to, to, to read them. They should be read, but not read aloud to everybody. Why? Because it, we don't want to confuse people into thinking that's Scripture. It's encouraging. It's good stuff. But it's not quite Scripture. There's a sense within the church that they know what is Scripture and what's not. After you form that collection, you move to your fourth stage, which is the selection. Some of these books then make it, some of them don't. For example, we have an old um, document called the, uh, uh, the Didache, the teaching, and it has a lot of practical advice. It probably wasn't regarded as Scripture because the churches realized Boy, if we, put the, if we put the veneer of Scripture on that, people are going to get very legalistic with all of this. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons it may not have circulated. It may also have been stuff that, well, these churches over here think this is the way to do it, but these churches over here see it a little differently, and they do it a different way. Whatever. We trust the fact that God is at work in that dynamic process of selecting what should be in and what should be out. Now, here's the thing. For the longest time... We didn't think that anybody drew up a list and said, here's your books, until the 300s. But then, one day in Milan, Italy, there's a fella, he's a historian. His name is Father Ludovico Antonio Miratori. And he's going through the, the, you know, the church libraries, and he discovers this this Latin manuscript, and it's kind of ripped up like this, and, it, and, it, and it, it's not all there. And he can tell that it's a translation of an earlier Greek document being, that has been translated into Latin. This is what we call now the Muratorian, named after Father Muratori, fragment or Muratorian canon, because written into it is a list of the books that ought to be the collection, the selection. They never use the term New Testament. Now, we think that the document is probably written before the, the, the 300s, the middle 300s, like, like we thought that was the earliest that we had. And it was probably written as early as 170, second century, late second century. How do you know that? Carbon dating? No. Because you read it and you realize he starts mentioning some things. One of the things he mentions in this, or the writer, not Miratori, but the writer mentions in this, whoever the writer is, he says, Hermas wrote a book called The Shepherd. Uh -huh. 
And we know about when that was written. And then he says, in our time, most recently, uh, he wrote The Shepherd. And this was all while Pius was the bishop in Rome. So we have a historical pinpoint where we can date this. And now we realize that as early as 170, guess what? They're pretty close to our 27. Now here's the difference. This list that's in that fragment has all the books that you've come to know and love. With the exception of Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, we're missing either 2nd John or 3rd John. Now the books aren't in there, just the list of them is in there. And then there's two more books included that, that we don't have in our Bible, the Apocalypse of Peter and the Wisdom of Solomon. What that means is there might have been a process of development, and maybe by 170, they're not as familiar with Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, or it's not accepted We don't know, but we can begin to see a process develop. And already that early, they're getting pretty close to our 27. But by the time you get to the 300s, every list you come across has the same 27 that you and I know here and now. Which leads us to our fifth stage, which is when you officially ratify it. You make it it the rule. The reason why you can't do that until the 300s is before that, There is no central power that can really do that. It's not until 325 when Constantine makes Christianity an official religion that putting this into statements even matters. And so by the time you get to 367 and you have a a bishop in Alexandria, for what it's worth, his name is Athanasius. 367, and he writes a, a letter. He He's writing all these letters. I mean, what else is there for a bishop in Alexandria to do other than write letters? Good, you know, they're called festal letters. It's like, hey, hey, celebration. And in one of his letters, he says, hey, here's the 27 books that make up the New Testament. And most people reading that say, well, thank you, Athanasius. And then they turn to each other and say, we already knew that. Yeah. But now, some people didn't see it that way. And there were some controversies. But by 367, most of that had been settled. And if a few folks out there thought that there were some secret books lying out there, well, that's another story that we'll talk about at another time. But why these 27? What, what, what is it about them? Well, part of it is the process that when you start to look at those 27 and you compare them to other stuff, you begin to realize, well, what else would you put in there and why? It's just exactly what's needed. You don't need an 11th commandment. Ten are fine. Yeah, but if we had an 11th one, no, it's ten. It's always been ten. It'll always be ten. Well, there are other commandments. I know, but they're not quite up there with the tenth, you know. There's a debate, and that debate means that the church can shape the canon, but at the same time, the canon, the list of documents, shapes the church. Here's the thing. The canon represents... Our story as the people of God. And that's the story that makes us the people of God. But as the people of God, we also know what that story is supposed to be. Now, we'll pick up on this uh, next time with uh, more of what shaped the New Testament, but also how we get to the Old Testament, which is a much longer process over a much larger span of time. And I thank you for your attention. Uh, Right now we're going to sing this song. If you uh, want to partake of communion, that's been prepared in room 100. So uh, 
Let's stand, let's sing, and we'll be dismissed in prayer.